Today we're just going to go straight to the Easter story, right? Just nice and simple, Luke 23, Luke 24, and talk about what happened um, all those years ago. Because here at Harvest Man, we love to rejoice in and to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and the new life that we are given through that on Easter and every other Sunday. But today, before we jump straight to Easter and resurrection, I want to pull back just a little bit further, right? And I want to to look and see the glory of the resurrection in light of the sacrifice of the cross, specifically the blood that Jesus gave on the cross for us and for our sins. And as all of you know, blood is an essential part of life, right? Like we don't live humans we don't make it very far if we don't have blood pumping through our veins correct um and because this my mom has always been a huge blood donation advocate right like she's always been like on me to donate blood right like all the time how many of you here donate blood have you done that before right yeah look at all you great citizens that's that's fantastic okay um so so like mom's on me all the time because evidently i have like the primo blood type that that o negative or whatever that everybody you know so once all the time and so, uh, so, but the problem with that is this, I have a major fear of needles, especially the big honking ones they use to take blood, right? Like that just doesn't go well for me. And on top of that, just add insult to injury, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really do blood. Like, like blood on the athletic field I can handle, blood in the action movie I can handle, medical blood, uh, it's just different. I don't know, it just hits different, I'm out, right? And so, so I, I've never been a big donator of blood, but one time in college... No good story starts that way, by the way. One time in college, um, I was resident assistant at this dormitory, and um, I, we were doing a, a blood drive for the dorm. And so I had to go on my floor and like sign up all these guys to, to give blood. And uh, they were like, yeah, are, are you? Are you giving blood? And I was like, no, that's why I'm signing you up to give blood, so I don't have to give blood. But they're like, no, we're not doing it unless you do it. And so they all kind of like put the pressure on me. And so I very, with much hesitation and trepidation, went into the blood drive that morning and uh, I go in, and they sit me down on this, like, gurney-looking thing, which in movies, that, nothing good happens on those, right? Like, I don't, I don't, that's not where I want to be sitting, but they put me on this thing, and they, they, they put this giant needle in my arm. I was doing okay, and I look over, I see the needle, and then I see this tube with just copious amounts of blood coming out of my arm and into this bag, and that was it. Like, two minutes in, like, I, I, lived, I got squeamish, like, all clammy, passed out in the chair in the middle of the room. All my college friends around, like it was so, it was so embarrassing. So finally I come to, and they've got me like all laid back with my, you know, head back, feet elevated, whatever. And I had to sit up for like 30 minutes until the wooziness dissipated. Some of you are like, man, y'all are such a, you're such a lightweight. Um, finally it got better. They gave me some free Oreos, which was like the highlight of the whole day. And, um, and I went about my way. But here's, where, here's my point with all that. We all know that blood is essential to physical life, right? Like, we have to have that. And it took about less than a pint to take me out. Uh, Most people can go more than that. Um, But if you lose about half of your blood supply, just a half a gallon of blood, most likely you will die, okay? That's how critical it is to our physical life. But here's the key. We don't just need blood for physical life. We also need blood for spiritual life. We need Jesus' blood that he shed on the cross to cover our sins so that we can be forgiven by God and have eternal spiritual life with him. And that's what we want to look at today. The living Jesus, the living Jesus is the only answer to the agony of sin and death. 
We know that agony. We live with that every day. We see it. We experience it. And the only answer past this life is the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see that today, not just from me, not just from my words, but from God's word. So turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We're going to kind of start in the middle of the story here. Jesus is kind of already on his way to the cross. He's, this is going to be his trial with the Romans before he's sent off to be crucified. Look at verse 13, chapter 23. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers, and the people said to him, I'm sorry, and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and started that started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I, therefore, I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. First thing I want to show you in the story today is the agony of death. Specifically, Jesus' death. And the agony of death actually starts here with the sinless Jesus. Pilate right here from the get-go, he says, there's no guilt in this man. Both Pilate and Herod, both the Roman rulers in this area, have both put him on trial, have questioned him, and said, there is nothing in this man justifying death. In fact, Pilate's so sure of it, he goes back to the crowd three times saying, this man is innocent. Believing that. And Pilate actually even spoke better than he knew. Because Jesus wasn't just innocent of their trumped-up charges. He was innocent of everything. He was sinless from birth. He was the sinless Son of God. And so there was no reason for this. And yet, here we are. Over in Matthew's account in chapter 27, Pilate is so sure of his innocence, it says this, it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing with the crowd, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water, and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Pilate is so sure of Jesus' innocence that he wants nothing to do with this. And so ceremonially, he washes his hands to say, I'm free of his blood. I'm free of his life. If he dies, it's on you. And the people said, fine. His blood's on us. His life is on us and on our children. In fact, this sinful act right here 
both by Pilate and by the people, show just how much they really do need the innocent blood and life of Jesus to cover their sins. The text says that their voices prevailed and he delivered Jesus over to their will. You see, this wasn't even a real trial, right? This wasn't even really about guilt at all. This was mob violence and political expediency that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus was not crucified because of guilt. Rather, he was crucified because of sin. Their sin of jealousy, not wanting him to have a bigger following than they did. Their sin of pride and trying to hold on to all of the, the power in the Jewish religious system. Their sin of greed and not wanting to lose political position over a riot that could cost me my livelihood. Their sin of self-worship that refused to bow to the God of the universe. That's what sent Jesus to the cross. And if we go down further in chapter 23, the story continues. Look at verse 33. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So we see the sinless Jesus now sacrificially suffering on the cross. But even before he got to the cross, he was suffering. If we go over to the accounts of Matthew and Mark, the other gospels, when they tell this story, they tell of another thing that happened in between the trial and the uh, the, the crucifixion, they called it a scourging. And a scourging is basically a severe beating. And scourging in this time was such a painful event that many people would actually die from the scourging before they even made it to the cross. Jesus' hands would have been chained above his head on a post or a wall, exposing his back and his legs to his torturers. They they would have taken a a whip called a cat of nine tails that had multiple leather straps coming off of it. And at the end of the leather straps, they would have little balls of metal and hooks made out of glass or bone or metal. With the idea of as if they would strike him, it would tenderize his back as if they were tenderizing meat. And then the hooks could latch in and pull away chunks of flesh and tendon and bone. And they would do this so severely that it would actually bruise the lungs where they could no longer stand to gasp for breath. And the blood loss would be so severe that it would tax the heart, many of them dying of a heart attack just from the beating, from the scourging. And through this beating, they then carry him off, or actually they made him walk off to Calvary for his crucifixion. And I think sometimes if we're around church too much, if you, you, know, if you have a church background at all, like, we kind of get used to that word, crucifixion. It kind of just becomes another word in our vocabulary, but it, listen, it's not something we should get used to. You see, the Romans 
they had worked years to perfect the practice of crucifixion. It was their most painful mode of execution that they used for only the most despised people. In fact, the pain of crucifixion was so horrendous that they had to come up with a new word to describe it. Excruciating. Excruciating actually means from the cross. As in that type of pain. Crucifixion was basically prolonged, agonizing death by asphyxiation. You would suffocate to death over time. And in order to bring maximum punishment, they would do it in a public place where people could come by and mock and jeer and spit on you and, and shame you as the criminals hung there naked and bloody, dying before their very eyes. In Jesus' case, he would have had somewhere between five and seven inch rough metal spikes driven into the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body, his hands and his feet. Due to the amount of pain involved as he hung on the cross, his body would have twitched involuntarily under the agony of it all. As he hung, as he hung there, in order to breathe, he would have to take his weight and push up off of his nailed feet just to get enough air to keep going. His heart deeply stressed, his body traumatized, his muscles devastated, blood loss severe. He slowly suffocated to death as his heart and his lungs gradually gave out. See, Jesus didn't just sacrificially suffer. He suffered in the most horrendous way for our sin. As he's hanging there on the cross, dying, the religious leaders mock him and say, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he really is God, if he's really the Messiah, if he's really who he says he is, then he can save himself. He can take care of all of this. And here's the kicker. They were right. He could have saved himself. He could have made it all stop right then and right there. In fact, he said as much to Peter the night before in the garden. Right? As they're in the garden, they're coming to arrest him. Peter picks up the sword, is trying to fend them off to protect his master and Jesus stops Peter in Matthew 26. He says, do you not think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Yes, Jesus could have made it all stop. He could have rescued himself. But he also couldn't have. Not and fulfill his purpose in coming. D.A. Carson in his book Scandalous, he writes it like this. He says, the deeper irony is that in a way that they did not understand, they were speaking the truth. If he had saved himself, he could not have saved others. 
And the only way he could save others was precisely by not saving himself. And the irony behind the irony that the mockers intended, they spoke the truth they themselves did not see. The man who can't save himself saves others. The whole reason that Jesus did not save himself was so that he could sacrificially save us through his suffering. So we have a sinless Jesus sacrificially suffering for guilty sinners. As he's on the cross dying for sin, he, he uses what little breath he has left to pray and cry out to God the Father. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays for forgiveness for their very sin against him. Their immediate sin of deceit and murder. But actually, he's also praying for their ultimate sin of unbelief. See, that's what really put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't anything else. It was the fact that they didn't believe that he was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh. And so they crucified him. And so he was dying for their unbelief, but not just to forgive them, but to forgive all of us throughout all of time who start in that state of unbelief if we will one day turn and see and believe in the risen Jesus. The story goes on. Look at chapter 23, verse 44. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The sixth hour would have been 12 noon. The ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. So from 12 to 3, middle of the day, darkness. And then it says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. In his final words, his final breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The same forgiveness that he just prayed for, he now dies to make possible. And as he dies, as he passes away, the centurion, the one who was the Roman guard who was overseeing the whole crucifixion who did this day in and day out. This was his job. He was a professional executioner. He did this hundreds and hundreds of times. But this one was different. He looked up at the man that he just killed, and he said, this man was innocent. See, Jesus, he did not die for his sin guilt. He died for ours. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Our sin guilt requires a payment, a payment of blood. 
either our blood or his. Those are the options. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul writes this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Jesus died for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. And so here we see the agony of death is seen most clearly in the sinless Jesus sacrificially suffering for guilty sinners. We're faced with the agony of death and of sin on a daily basis. But here it met its match. Because the agony of death, praise the Lord, Easter Sunday, is not the end of the story. You see, the agony of death has an answer. It is the answer of the resurrection. And so let's look at Luke 24 now, verse 1. And it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why, why, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. He said, remember, don't you remember? Don't you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. The answer of resurrection has two parts in this passage. Number one is the miracle of the resurrection. The angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Right, like he, he's not here. But I think that presses up against a question that oftentimes skeptics in our culture today want to ask about all of this, which is, was he really dead? I mean, like, was it just an act? Was it all theatrics? Was it all just a spoof in order to make us think he died so then they could claim resurrection? Is it real? Did he really die? Well, here's how I would answer that. Here's what I know. I just described to you a little bit ago. I won't put you through that again. The beating that he endured, followed by the hours and hours of hanging on a cross, they took him down and then they directly put him into a cold, dark tomb, no medical attention, no help, no food, no water. You think he's going to survive for three days like that? Not to mention, he was just verified dead by professional executioners who do this every day for a living, like you go to your day job. They were experts at killing people. They knew if he was dead. And then you had multiple witnesses that prepared the body for burial that all verified again, okay, he's dead, I guess we better bury him. Friends, I'm here to tell you, Jesus was dead. But praise the Lord, now... He's alive. 
right? That is the glory of the resurrection. And we know he's alive not just because the body was gone, right? Like, that's an easy magic trick, right? Like we see that all the time in TV. Like, you can get rid of a body pretty easily. It's not just that the body was gone. That kind of came out wrong. <laughs> it's that when he rose from death, he walked around in the flesh, in a body, and appeared to over 500 people over a 40-day span before he ascended back into heaven. This was not done in some corner where nobody saw it. Jesus was alive. The angels say that he has risen, and the word risen there is important because in the Greek, it, it's very specific. It's not saying that some other human came and raised him. Not that medication raised him. Not that some religious rite or spiritual seance raised him. But the word implies specifically that God the Father himself personally raised Jesus from the dead. Like no intermediary, no personal assistant, nobody doing it for him. He directly, personally, by the power of God, raised Jesus. That is the miracle of the resurrection. And then, I love, the, I love how the angels get a little snarky there at the end. Like, don't you remember? Or like, he already told you this was going to happen. Like, while he was still alive, he prophesied how this was all going to go with great detail. And in fact, not just him, but hundreds of years before him, the Old Testament prophets prophesied how this was going to go. They prophesied the betrayal and the trial and the type of death and the number of days in the tomb and his resurrection. It was all prophesied ahead of time. This is not happenstance. This is not some accident. This is a divine miracle planned and executed by the God of the universe. Only God could pull that off. Which proves that Jesus is who he said he is. That he was God in the flesh. And friends, Christians, this is precisely why we believe. This is why we worship. This is why we celebrate. Because we have a risen Savior. It's not just the cross. It's the resurrection that gives life to our faith. So we have the miracle of the resurrection, and we also have the meaning of the resurrection. I love how the angel here, right at the end, just in quick two verses, gives us the whole package of the meaning of the resurrection. He says, do you not remember when he told you that he had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men? Sinful men and women like us. We are all sinful men and women. The Bible tells us that. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. You know what all means? All. Every single one of us. Sinful men and women. But here's the great news. Jesus came for sinners. Like, I know that's shocking. That's hard to believe that God would actually purposely come here just for sinful people, but that he did. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul tells us the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This was his purpose. This is why he, he came in the first place. The reason he was delivered to the earth full of sinful men was to save sinners. He said the same thing in Luke chapter 5, 32, talking about himself. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins and to save us by calling us to repent of our sin and follow him. That's what we're called to. He says he was delivered into the hands of sinful men and then he was crucified. Jesus died to pay our sin on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us. This was God's love. Not his wrath. This was his love for you. That while we were still sinners, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we finally got it together, not whenever we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and got it on the right track, but while we were still stuck in our sinful ways, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He was sinless, and yet God put our sin on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. He stood in our place, and he paid for our sin. He died the death that we should have died so that we can live with God. Delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified on our behalf, and then he rose back to life three days later. Jesus rose to save sinners. You see, resurrection proves that Jesus was really the Son of God, that he really was the Messiah, that he really was the Savior. You see, without the resurrection, Jesus is just like every other dead religious leader that's ever existed. But with the resurrection, he is the name that is above every name. There is no other. Only Jesus has that. The resurrection proves that he conquered sin and he conquered death by taking the punishment and the wrath of God and returning with eternal life. At the end of the book in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus at the end of times, he's talking here, he's talking to John, and he says this, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, it's precisely Jesus' resurrection and eternal life that opens the door for all of us to have a shot at eternal life as well. It comes through his going before us that we can live forever with the resurrected Jesus because he is alive. In John chapter 11, he says to the woman, I am the resurrection and the life. See, it's not just the cross that saves us not just the cross that's important, it's also the resurrection that provides us the opportunity to be saved and to live forever with him. He said, I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. Just like Jesus. Jesus died, and yet he lives. That can be your story too. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You'll never die a spiritual death because you'll have eternal life with God. 
And then he turns to the woman and he just very plainly asks one question. Do you believe this? Like that promise, that offer of resurrected Jesus that he just gave to her, that we can all have eternal life with him, if we'll just repent of our sin and believe in him. So I want to ask you the same question. Do you believe this? Do you? Not your spouse, not your mom, not your kids, not... Do you believe this? Jesus is asking the same question. It's still re- as relevant today as it was the first time he said it to that woman. And he's saying it to everyone in this room today. Do you believe? Because the living Jesus is the only answer to the agony of sin and death. This is your only shot. This is your only opportunity is through Jesus Christ. There are no other options out there that work. We all feel this agony of sin and death in our world every day. You see it. You experience it. It could be your sin. It could be somebody else's sin against you. Losing that loved one, seeing it on the the TV screen. We experience sin and death every single day. And here's what I've come to find out, friends. We cannot escape it. Not on our own. So I want to give you an opportunity today to believe and follow Jesus if you haven't done that already. So if you would do me a favor, just if everyone would just bow their head and close their eyes for just a moment. I'm not going to do anything weird. This is like a safe place. This isn't some spiritual trick, okay? I just want to give everybody a chance here to have a personal moment with the Lord. Just you and God, just have a little conversation right here. Nobody else is going to interrupt you. Nobody else is looking around. I know some of you here today, you walked into this place with a weight on you. You feel the weight of agony and sin right now as we speak. And you're walking around underneath that every day, and it's like a plague on your life. It brings you constant pain sorrow, struggle. It brings conflict and issues. And you feel it right now, even right now as I'm talking to you. You feel that and you deeply desire a way out. Like there's got to be something better than this. There's got to be another answer than just enduring with this every day. I'm telling you, I promise you, Jesus is your answer. He's the one you need. He conquered all of it. He has already done the work. He's already paid for your sin on the cross. It's a done deal. If you will just believe in him, he will set you free. And he's calling you right now. Some of you feel it in your heart right now. Like the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and calling you to believe, to repent, to turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus. So if that's you today, I want to give you a chance right now. If you want to believe in Jesus and follow him, would you just slip your hand up and show me? Nobody else is looking around. Just me and you and the Lord right now. Is there anyone here today who wants to believe and follow Jesus? Put your hand up where I can see it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. 
Yes, thank you. Anyone else? This is your opportunity. This is your chance. Jesus is calling to you right now. Anybody else want to follow Jesus today? Okay. If you just raised your hand, I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me right now. We're just going to rep- I'm going to say you can just repeat the words in your heart between you and the Lord right now. It goes like this. Dear God, I know I am a sinner. I know that I have rebelled against you. I know that I have broken your word. And I know I can't fix it. I need you to save me from my sin. Please forgive my sin and give me new life with you. Help me to follow you from this day forward. In Christ's name, amen.